Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me today, Revenue Cat CEO, Jacob Eiding. Our guest today is Eric Stromberg, the founder and managing partner of Bedrock, a technology investment firm with roughly $1 billion under management. The firm has made investments in companies like Flock Safety, Plaid, Cameo, The Athletic, and many more. Eric is also the founder of Check, the payroll infrastructure API, and Universe Software, the holding company for vertical fintech businesses. On the podcast, we talk with Eric about the importance of refining your pitch, how to build a moat in consumer SaaS, and why your month one churn might not be as bad as you think. Hey, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Wanted to dive right in and talk about your now famous screenshot essays. <laughs> it's a really incredible format, and I just want to kick off uh, the conversation. We're going to talk through some of some of the ones more relevant to to the sub club audience. But just wanted to ask, like, what inspired you to create this format? Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me. And now famous is is definitely an overstatement, but I'll take it. Um, so, <laughs> so thank you for that. Um, yeah, so. I guess I'll start with a story that actually did inspire me uh, on the screenshot essays, which is relevant to some stuff um, hopefully we'll touch on uh, on this podcast. Uh, in 2013 and 14, I was building a company called Oyster, and it was the Netflix for eBooks. And I had the very you know good fortune of having um, as a mentor this guy Barry McCarthy, uh, who most recently joined Peloton as the CEO, but prior to that was uh, was at Spotify. The first meeting I ever had with Barry. Um, you know, he's famous for going to the whiteboard. So he um, he said, you know, let me teach you a little bit about the subscription business that you're building. He went to the whiteboard and he basically explained to me this idea that um, as subscription businesses get older, as their uh, cohorts age, the churn just kind of naturally comes down over time. And it was a very simple chart accompanied with like 30 or 45 seconds of voiceover. And it actually just became something um, of a life of its own where you know, I took that idea and whenever I would be closing a candidate, I would walk them through that idea. Whenever I was pitching investors, I would walk them through that idea. And it was like, it was one chart on the whiteboard and then a little bit of a voiceover. And it really struck me, you know, many years later that every business has something like this. Um, you know, every business has like, you know, to really understand the nuance, there are like two or three things that you just need to understand. And it's one chart and a little bit of a voiceover. And so that was actually the inspiration for the first screenshot essay. Could I distill this idea that I'd been telling people so many times over and over down to like one chart and 30 or 45 seconds of voiceover? And that concurrently dovetailed with kind of this feeling that I had was that business writing um, writ large was just kind of trying to boil the ocean. So should, could I could I distill something down to like a minute or less? And um, you know, I posted the first one with very little expectations, um, and people seemed to like it. So I, I kept yeah. writing them. I try to write as many as I can. It's way better. It's better. Every, anybody's relieved at this stage to not have to read a thread. So yeah, exactly. No <laughs> threads. No threads. You got my commitment. No threads on the uh, for me ever. You know, I, I probably saw your very first one, and then have followed everyone since. Um, and and it's kind of taken a life on its own. So we'll and we'll link to this in the in the uh, show notes, but. You've got screenshotessays.com. I will say it's a little frustrating that there's screenshots because uh, I couldn't copy and paste without gotta, I was like making. Uh, it, don't, don't, don't. I know, I know, I do. They actually didn't start as screenshots. They started as could I write something really short? 
And then it was like two sentences more than a screenshot. I was like, I got to make this a screenshot. And then <laughs> yeah, you know, no, I the format took the screenshot. I've gotten that yeah. feedback though. People are like, we want the text. Got to stay with the screenshot. Yeah. No, you got to. But I did want to ask, what 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 is your process for creating it? And, and so what I was going to say a minute ago was that I think the reason they really hit home for me and a lot of people, yeah. I think why it's really has taken on a life of its own is that is that distilling ideas and information down like that really is such an unappreciated skill or, or it's like you don't appreciate it until you see it, but it's like such a hard thing to do. So I just wanted to know, like, do you have a, a specific process or did, I mean, you know, writing short takes like 10 times as long as writing long. So these things yeah. take you, you know, weeks or like, <laughs> how, how does that go? Yeah. The process, uh, has, um, has evolved over time. Um, I actually always start with the, the visual. So, because I'm kind of a visual thinker, I like to think in in charts and graphs and and frameworks and stuff. And so, I actually open up Keynote, which is my uh, which is my tool of choice to make those beautiful graphs in the essays. And uh, and I and I kind of copy an old slide, make a new slide, and just start thinking through the chart. And then I found that once I get the chart down, everything flows from there. Whenever I have writer's block, it's not writer's block; it's you know chart creation block or something. And, uh, and then once I can break through that, um, I, I start to write around it. But, um, it, you know, all of these things that I've written about really are um, things that I find myself saying to other people, whether they're businesses that I've invested in, um, you know, businesses that we've bought through Universe Software, uh, businesses that I've built, these kind of core essence of what drives the business. And then when I find myself explaining it to somebody like three or four times, I'm like, okay, I should probably write an essay about this. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh... It's a skill you have to hone as an investor sounding smart in like a 30 minute meeting, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. We don't, yeah, exactly. We talk for like 10% of the time with the entrepreneurs. So when we talk, we, we got to get right to the really, point and say something yeah. impressive. Yeah. It's, always, it's, yeah. always, it's always harder than it seems. I think applicable to, to our audience, and then part of the reason I wanted to talk about this is that, and I feel like we need to do this for Revenue Cat. Like we need to do a better job. A new product marketing manager started today. Um, you know, the marketing team, we've talked a ton about different kind of positioning things. And like, I, I think for most apps out there, for almost anybody listening to this podcast who is running a business, like try and do a screenshot essay of like what's meaningful or what's, you know, what distribution advantage do you have? What What's unique about your business? And boiling it down is... If you guys want me to, I love it. if the marketing team wants me to do more content, just tell me if it's, <laughs> if it's stuck to a size of a screenshot. You're welcome anytime, Jacob. Yeah. You're welcome anytime right, on, right, uh, on, on screenshotessays.com. Right. You're welcome. All right. I think you hit this, like the three ideas that I have. I think you already wrote about. So like, I don't know. I have, okay, to, perfect. I have to get creative. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's true though. It's, I mean, what's, there's that like uh, overused Mark Twain quote. Like I would have wrote you a shorter letter, but I didn't have enough time. Uh, yeah. It's really, it's yeah. actually really challenging to to write. And you have to, you have to be really, comfortable not saying things right i think it's really right. it's a really uh yeah you have to have a lot of confidence to be like okay i'm gonna leave that out i'm gonna leave this out i'm gonna leave that out i'm gonna kind of assume that the reader's gonna follow this and they might and they may or they may not right it's a it's a fine yeah it's a tough it's a tough game to balance leaving out the context but like still maintaining the the overall point of the message so 100 and and just to bring it back um to you know d developers and those building companies like whenever I write these essays, there's always points that I'm like, oh man, like I, I didn't want to cut that, right? But you do. And I think yeah. the same is true in building any company, right? Whenever you're yeah. pitching the company again to investors, to the press, 
to, to people you're going to hire. There's like 10 talking points that you, that you talk through, that you speak through, and you see someone's eyes light up. And, and you hate to lose eight or nine of those, but often that's what you need to do, right? To really land the punch on the one thing, that, the one point you're trying to make. And, and with my essay, I find that all the time. It's just, okay, what am I tr- actually trying to say here? What's the one yeah. takeaway? Because in, you know, in, in one screenshot, you don't have much time to jump all over the place. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's a great lesson for for product development too. I mean, you know, that's a, the constant battle. It's like there's ten features you always want to build, and all of them are great. But what's that? Those one or two you need to focus on right now. Yeah, only two or three will matter, and most people can yeah. really yeah. Only understand two or three right about your product, at least in that yeah. initial pitch, right? When you're building a right. platform or something, maybe it changes. And it's so but- painful as an entrepreneur because you're like, I spent so much time on these other ten things, and like. Maybe these other 10 things were so much harder to build than the two things that you actually want to hear about. Yeah. But I got to put that to the side, right? Well, let's dive into the meat of this then. Um, I think it's one of the first screenshot essays I saw of yours, or at least an early one that lit lit up my mind being so focused on consumer subscriptions myself um, was the one where you talked about Duolingo, Bumble, and the rise of consumer SaaS and how Mm -hmm. it parallels B2B SaaS. So I'd love for you to give us just kind of a, I mean, you could almost read the whole screenshot <laughs> essay and it'd be a TLDR because it wasn't too <laughs> long to read. Well, well, Come on, go attack. Exactly. So, so give us a little summary of your ideas uh, there. And then I'd love to, to ask some questions about your thinking. Yeah, for sure. And I'll, I'll uh, put some context around it. Um, it really uh, was written as a rallying cry uh, for those building in consumer SaaS to say, hey, you know, I know people might be overlooking your business or underestimating it, um, but there, these businesses can grow much larger than anybody thinks. Um, and you should have confidence in that. And so what gave me the confidence to write that is that I started my career in 2010, um, working actually at a consumer internet company. Um, but at the time, I vividly remember that all of the oxygen in the room, all anyone was talking about were consumer companies. It was Google, it was Amazon, it was Facebook, which was on the rise. And in fact, if you as an entrepreneur said, I'm building a SaaS business, people would look at you and like, like one step up from building a lemonade stand, right? It was yeah. like, wow, you, that, you must not be ambitious. You're building a SaaS company, right? I remember right? we and, had an SDK. I had an SDK company doing something not that dissimilar from Revenue Cat. And like all the advice we got was like, just grow your use. Like everybody was pitching us like a, if we had 100%. just like slapped the, slapped the SaaS be on it, whatever made it a SaaS company, oh, we'd be in a different, but yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, it's, and it made sense. Like the, the data supported it, right? So like Google in 2010 was a $300 billion company. And then Salesforce, which was like the best SaaS business, you know, after, you know, 10 years of building, it's a $10 billion company, right? And so, and then there weren't many even billion dollar SaaS businesses. And so like mm-hmm. the data supported kind of the narrative that everybody was saying. And, and obviously, if you fell into that narrative, you just got it completely wrong, right? So fast forward to today, in many ways, the most interesting businesses of this generation are all SaaS companies, right? There's Shopify, Zoom, Square, et cetera. And so what people got wrong was that they were comparing two different types of businesses that were actually on different evolutionary timelines. And so the kind of internet giants of Web 1.0 came up a little bit earlier than a lot of these SaaS companies. And the SaaS companies, um, came up later with kind of later built out infrastructure. So different evolutionary timeline playing out on different timescales. And so um, I made the comparison to consumer SaaS today where you know SaaS has had the benefit of 20, 25 years of this infrastructure being built out of companies building companies or people building companies um, and people learning how to build those companies. And consumer SaaS by comparison 
is just way newer. And so, um, you know, a- Apple only launched in app subscription in 2011. Like, like I know you all know that, but like a yeah. lot of people don't and focus on that. Limited audience, right? It wasn't really. And then a very limited audience. Uh-huh. And then Stripe, same thing around that same time, and Google the yeah. same time. So, like, it is new in this in the spectrum of internet evolution. Like, it is very, very new. So, the point I was making that essay is um, consumer SaaS is on a different, later evolutionary timeline than SaaS. It should not be compared to it in terms of the overall market caps or sizes of these businesses. It should not be dismissed out of hand as just inherently smaller. We need to give it some time to play out. Let's check the receipts in 10 years when some of these businesses yeah. like Discord, like you know, Duolingo, have another 10 years of growth behind them. So I, I love that the the goal behind this was to be a rallying cry, but I, but I have to ask, you know, because these are the things I think about is you know, B2B SaaS now, you know, multiple hundred billion dollar companies and and lots of decacorns and and like hundreds of unicorns, it seemed. But part of the reason for that is that you were creating a ton of value to businesses who aren't shy about paying up, you know, to to save employees time, to increase productivity, to um, to grow the business. And uh, so in some ways it makes sense, you know, how profitable those SaaS businesses are. But I, I do still wonder, like in consumer SaaS, is it really that big of an opportunity? Like, are consumers willing to pay? You know, can we make make it up on volume uh, in consumer SaaS? So like, what are, what are your thoughts about like how consumer SaaS gets to be that big? Yeah, so I'll come at this from a few different directions. Number one is just the starting point, which is that uh, consumer spending in the United States is like two thirds of uh, spend. So it's like greater than business spend, right? So you start there. Now, of course, there's a lot of things people are spending on that aren't ultimately going to be captured by apps. But just as a starting point, there's no inherent reason why consumer SaaS or consumer spend should be dramatically less than B2B uh, spending. So that's kind of my starting point. I think the second point is, the way these things play out over time um, of how businesses can find a wedge and then expand into adjacent areas is just dramatically underestimated. And so if you look at something like Shopify, which today is kind of the, the hallmark example of a phenomenal SaaS business that has expanded, for the first 10 years of Shopify's life, it was SaaS only. It wasn't until 2013 that they launched payments. And then a few years later, they launched capital. And more recently, they launched banking and, uh, and cards. At today, fintech or merchant services is roughly you know, 70% of its revenue, right? And so if you had said in 2011, like what's Shopify gonna become? How big can it be? You would really only be thinking about the SaaS opportunity and you'd be actually missing the vast majority of the opportunity that they would pursue over the ensuing 10 years. And so part of this is a, so part of it is, well, consumer spending is, is the majority of spend in the United States. The other one is just the belief that I have in kind of these innovation cycles that I've seen play out many times over, which are entrepreneurs find a wedge, they then find creative and interesting ways to expand on that wedge through new infrastructure that pops up to enable them. And then there's this beautiful cycle between more applications being built, more products being built, more infrastructure being built to serve those use cases, and on and on and on. And so part of it, again, is just this belief that that innovation cycle is still in flight uh, within consumer subscription. Yeah. And, you know, something we've talked about on the podcast too, and I'm curious to get your take on this, is that as a percentage of consumer spend, spend on software is 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 infinitesimal, it's tiny. Um, you know, so people do only, you know, spend maybe, you know, 30, 50, $100 a year on things like this. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, if you're, if you're going out to eat, 
you know, you're spending a hundred, 200 bucks on a, on a nice dinner out, you know, and if there's software to help make that a better experience, if there's a, you know, a foodie app that, that yep. highlights the best things to order at certain restaurants or gets you into, to heart, you know, wait lists and things like that. You know, if you pay 60 bucks a year for something like that, when you're dropping, you know, hundreds of dollars, potentially a month on, on eating out, like it, it does seem like there's still opportunity to provide a lot of value to consumers. Um, and then, like you said, go into these these adjacent spaces. Like we just talked to uh, Fishbrain Lisa from Fishbrain on the podcast recently, and you know, they're they're expanding out into other yes um, marketplace and other things. We're in a hobby where people spend a ton of money on fishing. Um, so yeah, it's really fascinating. But what do you think about? So first, like, how, where's that extra spend potentially going to come from? You know, is it going to come from, you know, not buying another meal by, you know, paying for an app, not buying another outfit because you buy a, a outfit tracking app or something. So and then then the second question kind of tied into that is like, at what point do consumers kind of hit that subscription fatigue of of not feeling like uh, software is valuable enough to spend that much money? You know, where uh, subscription after subscription after subscription. We see, you know, you see posts on it uh, all the time. So, what are your what are your thoughts on those kind of intertwined ideas? Yeah, uh, you know, I come from this this school of thought, which is um, the only way to fight subscription fatigue um, is to to build better products that serve people better and in more yeah. complex and interesting ways, right? And so, you know, one answer to that question is the very tactical, which I, I somewhat reject, which is, oh, you got to switch everybody over to one-year plans or two-year plans, and you got to send more emails, yeah. and you got to get your CRM better, and you got to acquire better people, you know, better customers on Facebook. Like that blocking and tackling will get you, you know, five or ten percent the way there. But what's going to really improve your business? And kind of break through uh, what I refer to as the carrying capacity of the business, which is basically when you know churn equals uh, new customers, and you basically start leveling out. To actually cut through that carrying capacity, you need to drive product improvement, right? And product improvement can be um, for some companies, if you're a content-based business, it can be you know better discovery, helping people find things better. You know, for other types of businesses, it can be um, accumulation of data in some interesting way, and then and then feeding that back to users. So that would be like the straw of example. It could be expanding into adjacencies like financial services, um, or some combination of all of those things. And um, you know, I would point to something like DoorDash, right? Which which is actually, if you look at it, in many ways, a consumer SaaS business, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, they started as a marketplace, and obviously, that's the the lion's share of their business. But 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 you say. If you ask the question, well, how do you get a user to just pay you a little bit more in subscription fees every uh, every month? That's a hard question. If you ask, well, how can you serve them in more interesting ways? That's a really interesting question. And so DoorDash, you know, they have a take rate on the um, on the actual orders. They also have this um, subscription product uh, that has done very very well. They then use that position to now actually, you know, they're launching um, lending products for the other side of the marketplace, the actual restaurants. And so if you look at it in a more holistic way, as opposed to just how do you get people to pay more in SaaS fees or subscription fees, mm -hmm. it really does unlock potentially order of magnitude increase in the, the kind of market share, or the wallet share that you can get. Yeah, there's, I mean, you, I was thinking back to your analogy with Shopify, and I think Fishbrain example is actually good at this, but I was, I was struggling to think like for a B2B, the platform play makes a lot more, like makes a lot of sense, or at least I've, you've seen it enough times, right? Like you build a platform, you have businesses have all these other use cases. I think for consumer, it's a little trickier. The DoorDash example is great, right? Because they have this like, yeah. these apps are like moving towards the direction of like the, the Chinese 
unit app for everything kind of because Uber Eats is doing the same thing. But then I, when I think of like the, I want to say average, but like your, your, yeah. your, your day-to-day subscription SaaS content base at, you know, exercise, whatever it is, like you can think of any category. It's a little bit harder to draw the analogy of like how you move out. And I think that's, that's, I think one of the, the challenges, and maybe that's what we're waiting for. You know, we talk about this, this, yes. uh, this jump from SaaS being the monsters now and, and consumer SaaS being the, the relatively like single unicorns or decacorns. And then in the, yeah. when we look at them as hundred billion dollar companies, that's the leap they have to make, right? Is like figuring out what that, yes. what that platform, yes. how you do a platform play in consumer. Yeah. And I, I think you, when you, when um, a few companies start doing that, um, others will follow. Uh, and that's what's so beautiful about how these cycles play out is that they're very efficient. And when Shopify figured out the financial services thing, there's, you know, now in every market, you have a vertical fintech company that's building, you know, SaaS plus financial services for that specific market. And, um, and I'm excited to see that innovation continue to push on consumer SaaS. I'd say to answer your question of like, you know, yes, if like DoorDash, you can actually aggregate the demand side of any potentially two-sided marketplace, you can build a bridge to something like payments um, or some other opportunity. And so DoorDash did this. There's a company called Peak that has done this for uh, for travel. Um, So they own kind of the demand side and they've kind of used that to expand to the travel company side. Um, You know, your average exercise app, you probably have to think a little bit more deeply about it. But Certainly, if there's lots of consumers using your app, there is demand there that you can potentially serve in a more meaningful way and then use that to, to kind of expand uh, commensurate. Yeah, that, that actually is perfect segue into your your next, and you kind of touched on, on a lot of this next screenshot essay is, is the, uh, the hidden moats in consumer subscription. So yeah, tell, tell us uh, kind of the idea behind that one. Yeah, so I mean, I love this one because um, it, it is the foundation of how I think about consumer subscription, which is that um, you know when I started my company Oyster, the first month that we launched, after we launched, I think we had about fifteen percent churn. So I looked at the numbers and I said fifteen percent churn. That seems really high. I then checked it against kind of what Netflix was seeing and what these act scale companies were seeing, and and they showed call it three four percent at the time churn, and I was like, wow we must have like a really high churn business on our hands. And then I talked to a few other people who said like, no, that's not how it works, right? Um, When you launch, you have an influx of new customers. Those customers by definition are very, very early in their life cycle. Early users churn at higher rates than older users. It makes sense, right? If you see value, you stick around and you're less likely to churn over time. If you don't see value, you leave early. And so comparing a business that is in the first month of launch to a business that's like 15 years old and the majority of its subscriber base is older than 10 years. It's just a complete apples to orange comparison. So I outlined this idea to help consumer subscription founders really understand that um, one, if you launch and see a high churn rate relative to benchmarks, like that's okay. Like, um, you know, expect it. Um, What's more important is that you reach some sort of asymptote, which basically means at some point, um, that churn starts to level off. And so maybe it's 15% in month one, but by mo- in month two, it's 10. So it goes down about five percentage points. Then maybe month three, it's seven and a half, you know, and then it's, you know, it's seven. Then, you know, it's kind of starts leveling out and doesn't keep dropping at a linear rate. That's actually more important. And so uh, that was the, that was the genesis of writing about it uh, because it wasn't something that I understood as an entrepreneur, but when I learned it, it really gave me a new lens with which to think about my business. 
Yeah. And it's um as having been on the other side, it can it can be very uh you feel very weak as a as an app builder because the time scales that you receive <laughs> that information, it's too long. Like you can't look month to month. Time. You're and you're and you're 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 living this life of being data driven and like you want to be measuring, like are we improving this and not? And it's kind of difficult. Like you can't over the scale of years. Um, but sometimes you don't have that long, right? <laughs> Depending on your funding right. timelines right. and things like this. Which is why I always just say, look at the the rate of change. Um, that's really the only thing you can look at is, is it getting better over time or is it staying the same? If it's staying the same, you have a problem. Churn should be coming down over time on a cohort basis. Yeah. And it seems like that's kind of the important takeaway too is for, uh, and we're, we'll be working on some benchmarks ourselves since we have a, a ton of great data that we can do that with. Um but it's to look at those benchmarks as cohorts, not as overall. Right. So when Netflix reports a 3% churn of their entire user base, that is kind of uh, handicapping versus like if they actually reported on a cohort level churn, it would look very much more like what other consumer SaaS companies are, are facing. Yes. And then kind of the other uh, part of that essay that you didn't quite get to yet was how over time, those users who don't churn continue to provide revenue month after month over month. So you start building up and we, inside Revenue Cat, we have this chart that it's this like layer cake of your cohorts where ideally you're kind of building that over time. And if it, and you know, we see it in our data, there's some apps where it's like the cohort will spike and then it goes to almost nothing. And then the next one spikes and goes to almost nothing. The next one spikes and goes to almost nothing. And you're not really layering on those retentive cohorts, but in a great consumer SaaS business, you start to layer those those retentive cohorts where you get two, three years into it and you've had 50% retention year over year and now you're making 50% on top of whatever yeah. you're, you're growing that next cohort. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so now you have the cash flow to build. Every cohort does that spike thing. Like there's no app in the world that doesn't have a spike and a fall right, off, right, but right, the, right, the best right. apps, it doesn't go to zero. And that's all you need, that's right? right? <laughs> like, yeah, like, and like, it's highly sensitive if how close it is to zero. But yeah, I mean, that's what you're hoping for, right? It, versus versus B two B SaaS, like you don't get that spike and decay. Typically, it's, it's a much right. smoother cohort curve. And then, as you layer that cash, part of the point of the essay was that you then use that extra yeah. cash flow for marketing, for product development, for R and D to actually continue to build additional moats. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and this is why the at scale subscription businesses like Spotify or Netflix uh, or even a level below, you know, smaller than that, um, you know, like a Duolingo, they're actually very hard to compete with um, because they have these older subscription bases that churn at much lower rates um, on a blended basis. So call it two, three, four percent. And so as a new entrant, again, you, you come in and you're churning at 15 percent a month. You have to spend a, a much higher percentage of your revenue just to replace your user base every month. You have to spend you know fifteen percent of your revenue uh, potentially or, or more to re replace it. You know Netflix only has to replace three percent or two percent of its user base, and so they have more capital to actually go out and do R and D to acquire better titles, things like that. And so it actually does become over time a very very significant moat for the business that does happen to build organically. And so the good news for the founder or the entrepreneur is. You have to deal with a, a substantially higher churn rate versus maybe an established incumbent right off the bat. But if you can overcome that, it actually just naturally, without you really doing anything else other than building your business, uh, becomes a moat against potentially new entrants. 
Yeah. And do you think this means that we're kind of ending in this like winner take all, like it, it, our, our calm and headspace kind of too big to fail now where like they just are going to too, too big to be kind of mass against, market. Right? If you think yeah. about not just, yeah. Eric, you, you were talking about the returning or replacing the churn. I mean, there's this, there's this other problem of getting people to churn in the first place, right? Like get it, like right. you have to invest <laughs> in a tremendous amount of capital to even get to close to a scale. Like, Assuming that you're scaling via paid acquisition, but all acquisition yes. is paid in some way, right? It just depends on the leverage you, you have. But yes. like you have to build in to get to that scale. And like, yeah, like Duolingo, like how do you, I don't know what their subscriber numbers are, but it's crazy. It's by far the best language learning app or the biggest language learning app out there. It's not even the best, like it's fine. But if you go on like language learning forums, like everybody's like Duolingo, yeah. eh, it's, it's a good thing, right? Like it's not terrible. It's not great, right? there. I think there are other better competitors out there. like but. They, they have a huge mountain to climb to get even yes. get close. And I think with Duolingo specifically, um, you know, I don't know what the retention looks like. I haven't looked at it recently, but they just have a, an unbelievable top of funnel, right? So, you know, if, if you say to a friend, hey, I'm going abroad and I want to learn a language, you know, I want to learn a little bit. Just the thing that's top of mind is Duolingo, right? It's just the Accessible. thing that everybody uses. And so like the, I'm a big fan of analogies, but the analogy uh, with something like that is they just, um, you know, they're on a beach and just every day, you know, tons of fish wash ashore, right? Just tons and tons of fish wash ashore. And they just have to grab a few of them, you know, while walking down the beach uh, leisurely, right? Whereas if you're competing with them, you got to go deep sea fishing and, and stock up on the, you know, the gas to get there and spend the time. And, you know, maybe you don't catch any fish, but that's really hard to compete with, right? That's like a competitive yeah. advantage of a different variety, which is they just have a massive top of funnel. And so to compete with them, you know, you just, you, you almost can't, right? You just yeah. have to do something completely different or or asymmetric or some new innovation that feels substantially better or different. I mean, I was going to say, I mean, that when you think of the ecosystem, just of language learning as an example, like I, I think there's probably a lot of second or third tier compared to the size of Duolingo companies that that's supporting. Like Duolingo supports that ecosystem by bringing in casuals or whatever. And then people want to get <laughs> right. more serious and they want to try something different and whatever. But yeah, like you said, like you need to, you'll have to do something to topple Duolingo. They'll even either have to, really drop the ball and like stop paying attention uh or you'll have to do something like totally that they cannot beat right uh yeah. otherwise so yeah these, these and that, that's your moat point right like the, the moat is very yes. real what what other moats do you think subscription apps can build with that cash flow or or how do you think you know when you're advising companies like as they get to year two year three and the finances are looking a lot better the cash flow is looking better um, where do you think the kind of key strategic points are to be thinking about and investing that cash flow into? Because uh, you know a lot of apps, it's like, well, okay, we'll just spend more on marketing, and you know, we'll just like keep scaling, scaling, scaling. Do you think there's other places to kind of strategically build out these moats? Absolutely. Um, it ultimately comes down to what type of business you are. So for a content-based business, um, which is uh, which you know I know is a very popular category to build within the app store. Um, I think there is a decision point that every content-based app needs to make, which is, are you a platform uh, to enable other content providers to reach customers? So this would be the Roku example, right? Roku is not ultimately um, a content provider. They exist as kind of a choke point where they are rounding up lots of customers who come and expect great content, and then they want as much content as possible to be on their platform, right? They're an open platform. You know, the, the counter to that would be something like Peloton, which, um, you know, they, uh, so the, the flip side of being a platform is to be a content producer. So Peloton is a content producer. Netflix is a content producer, right? They 
produce content and they want it to be everywhere. I think it's tricky to try and do both, to try and build both a platform or a distribution choke point, as well as be a content provider, because you're investing in so much content, a lot of dollars. And the question is, well, why aren't you elsewhere? Right? Consumers are in a lot of different places. They're not just on your app. Why don't you go meet them where they are? Right? And that is fundamentally at odds with trying to round up as many customers as you want. And so, you know, for the content-based businesses, I would first ask that question. Do you want to be a platform that is, enables lots of different people to reach lots of different content? Or do you want to be a content provider? And once you decide on that, it kind of dictates which strategy you can take for growth. Yeah, we kind of talked about this uh, earlier, but you kind of mentioned in passing that fitness apps are, are a really tough area. Are there any fitness apps? And you did already kind of mention Strava, but you know, in that kind of a competitive category, uh, are there things you see companies building moats and in ways that are potentially applicable to other subscription apps? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give a quick uh, plug for a company that uh, the business that I uh, helped start, um, Universe Software, we acquired uh, last year. It's called Equilab. And it is the largest community of uh, horseback riders, so equestrians. And I think it's a really instructive example where basically they built a product that did very accurate gait tracking for riders. And so people who are riding, they want to know kind of at a very detailed level what was happening with the horse at specific moments in the ride. So they basically built this. It's actually pretty hard to build technology to understand what was happening based on the movements of that horse. And so they used that one tool as a way to basically aggregate all of these equestrians in the world and then went deeper into their workflow. So that's kind of the theme is like you start with a wedge and then you go deeper in the workflow. So another product they launched on the back of that is actually a safety tracking feature where basically when you turn that on, if there's impact, uh, someone that you select is notified of that impact. So obviously when you ride a horse, you know, you can fall off the horse and that can be really bad, right? And so what they offer is the ability, right, if you fall, someone gets notified. Now it's built more deeply into your workflow. It's not just a product for you, it's a product that you're using with, with somebody else. And so it makes it you know, on the margin a little bit more sticky. They then said, okay, where, you know, where are these equestrians actually riding? They all ride at these horse stables, which have other people who are riding, right? And so you know, can you share what you did? Can you connect with your community at that horse stable? Again, going from a single player mode to maybe a double player mode to a multiplayer mode, getting much more embedded in that workflow. And so, you know, it all comes back for me to, to just product. How do you build more product to serve that customer in uh, more unique ways, more deeply embedded ways? And that would be one example. And and exploiting the niche yeah. you're in, right? Like not not uh, That's right. not just copying Strava, like open Strava and be like, oh, I'm doing a horse workout at everything, whatever. <laughs> like I'm doing, I'm doing a Strava, right? Like that's not going to work. Strava's for Strava. Yeah, you right? have to, you have to, exactly. And I think there's a lot of that for better or worse of just looking at what other people do and trying to copy it. You learn a lot that way, but ultimately it comes down to what your customer is doing, right? Like, you know, you wouldn't get that safety feature by looking at, you know, trying to copy something from Calm, right? Um, another one that they're that they're working on is posture, right? So people want to have good posture when they're riding. Like that's just super unique and idiosyncratic mm -hmm. to uh, to the market that they operate in. Yeah, and you're you're making real champions out of your customers too. Let me tell you, right? When you're when you're focusing on problems that nobody else has helped them with, right? You're going to create really loyal, yeah. really loyal customers. And maybe like, yes. who knows how big equestrian stuff is? Like, I don't know how big it's, I, maybe it's not as big as the language link market. Maybe it's bigger. Who knows? But it's like, not, it's not. But if you still can build, if you can be that moat builder, you can build that Duolingo yes. moat in that marketplace, like go for it, right? Like that's, that's, yeah. that's going to be a great business. Yes. 
Yeah, and you brought up a uh, universe. I wanted to ask you, you more about that. It, so one of the things I, I love about your perspective is like you're writing these screenshot essays, you can talk about this stuff, but you've got skin in the game too. So you're investing in companies through Bedrock yep. and now you kicked off Universe Software. You're actually buying and helping to operate these businesses. Uh, so it's, give us a pitch, the elevator pitch on what Universe is and, and why you bought this equestrian app. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we started, uh, so Bedrock, the venture firm that I uh, co-founded, uh, we incubated Universe Software uh, last year um, and the team operates out of Atlanta. The, uh, the starting point for us was uh, there's this business Constellation Software, uh, which is in Canada and is a you know, 30 to $40 billion public company. The way they became that was by, uh, in, a, in the late 90s, starting to buy vertical SaaS businesses. So at the top of this podcast, we talked about those businesses being really underestimated for a long period of time. They just started buying them in the 90s. And then they've now built up a portfolio many years later of hundreds of these businesses as the world has kind of shifted to appreciate them much more deeply. So we, we kind of asked the question, what would Constellation look like if it was started in 2021 as opposed to 1995? And uh, we um, coalesced on an idea that basically there were a lot of SaaS businesses, um, both B2B, prosumer, and potentially even consumer, that were adjacent to very large financial services opportunities. So I talked about Shopify. That's a great example, right? Um, you know, another good example would be something like Toast, which you know built the point of sale and has since expanded. You know, obviously to payments, to lending, to payroll these financial services that they were able to ladder into because they had solved this very, very complex uh, productivity use case for their, for their customer. And so the idea was basically, can we buy these software businesses, these SaaS businesses that sit adjacent to fintech opportunities and then actually launch those fintech opportunities? So things like payments, banking, cards, payroll, and lending on the back of the initial wedge that that company has carved out for themselves. And so, um, you know, our, our one of our first acquisitions, I'll talk about it in, in much more specific detail, um, was really a prosumer app that primarily had distribution through the app store. It's called the Point Fix. And uh, they really became the leading uh, software that micro SMBs, so call it you know one or two person SMBs, whether it's a barber or a you know nail technician um, or uh, you know a hairstylist, they use for scheduling. So they block out their time, they share it with their customer base. And that customer base schedules an appointment. They do not do payments on the back of that uh, appointment booking, but it is a very natural extension for them. And oftentimes that um, you know, barber wants to take a deposit to reduce no-shows. So payments was very natural. So we, we acquired that business um, that was SaaS only at that moment in time, and we're expanding into financial services. And so the goal of, the, uh, of Universe Software is to build a holding company of these vertical fintech businesses that all go deeply uh, tailored to a need of a specific vertical. You know, in that case, it's uh, these, these micro SMBs and actually build what ultimately looks like um, the 21st century version of a bank. So 10, 15 years ago, 100 years ago, if you needed financial services, you'd go to your local bank branch. Um, we increasingly believe that small businesses will turn to their trusted software to serve that same purpose. And we're building a collection of these that go deep on a specific vertical to do that. So where does the equestrian app fit in? Because you talked about a lot of aspects of, of why the equestrian app has a moat and how they're expanding into different use cases for that specific niche. But where's the, the fintech opportunity there? 
Yeah, really great question. Um, so what we look for is an adjacency to a flow of funds, and, and that can be payments or payroll. So on the payment side, you know, it's invoices, it's appointments, it's booking, it's contracts, it's maybe even CRM and, and, and loyalty. On the payroll side, it's scheduling, it's time tracking, it's hiring and onboarding. And with um, uh, Equilab in particular, um, going back to what I said earlier about DoorDash, um, when you can own the demand side and really have a great user base of demand, you can actually use that to build a path toward the, the business itself. In this case, it's, it's stables. And most specifically, booking of appointments with coaches, payments for services around the horse, because often people will uh, who use Equilab will uh, put their horse with a specific stable and they have to pay for services. And so I'm not going to go too deep into what we have planned, but basically yeah. <laughs> um, we found it to be the most strategic entry point into that specific market was to own the demand. And I'm going to ask because I, I would assume you know this off the top of your head. What do consumers spend in the U.S. on horse-related <laughs> things? It's significant. It's significant. So, like, we look for markets where we can see a path to five to ten billion of GMV. Um, and so, you know, maybe equestrian isn't isn't quite at that level, but it's very significant yeah. as it relates specifically. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a user base that does not mind spending uh, for yep. this hobby that they are so so passionate about. Right. I guess I never realized that was such a key part of your thesis was like the bridge into to fintech and payments and things like this, which yeah. I guess makes a lot of sense. We're talking about these platforms, the transition of a consumer content driven, experience driven app into a more platform experience. Like where else do you go? I mean, there's not a whole lot of other platform plays there, um, but I'm curious okay. like how, I mean, this is, seems like the problem that universe is set to solve, but that's kind of a big gap for the folks that make apps jumping into fintech <laughs> i mean i'm just 100 100 and so and so this is this is why it's so interesting and look i'll say full stop like you know not every app in the app store is right for this so you're right if it's a content business like even the business that i built uh, oyster you know probably doesn't make as much sense um but but you'd be surprised how many of these businesses actually do sit adjacent or maybe one step away from some point of transaction and then once you own the point of transaction it naturally does lead itself very cleanly down a path to at least banking, um, and then potentially things like cards and pay advance or uh, invoice advancing, and so. Um, it, but it's not going to be it's not going to be exactly right for everyone. Um, one of the things that we do look to solve here is: is you're right. A lot of uh, founders of consumer SaaS businesses or even SaaS businesses build it to a certain point. They built a phenomenal business. It may not make sense to go raise a ton of venture capital, um, but partnering with Universe, who acquires the business. And then actually, the other thing I'll mention is we do not operate the businesses. So we help, we support, we augment the teams that are in place to basically, as we call it, go further together. And so if, yes, that idea of taking on financial services is daunting, and it is. Like, I, I built these businesses. And so there are a lot of fraud and risk elements to it. Um, owning a master balance account allows you to have better um, terms with service providers. It's a daunting thing. And, and part of what we want to do is come partner with us, go you know, execute against that really ambitious vision, and we're going to help you get there. So you, you probably can't talk too much to all the opportunities you see. And I, I would imagine you probably have ongoing talks with other uh, apps in the, in the space, but are there any opportunities that you see that you can mention in this space that, that you're particularly interested in? Yeah, um, it really does come down to um, has, the cust has, has the app developer built a product at the productivity layer. So we call it productivity layer is the SaaS part of the business. 
The financial services layer is payments and everything else. We look for a productivity layer, deeply embedded, deeply ingrained behavior that could be supported on a 10-year time scale. And so that's really important. Like if we're gonna, if we're gonna pursue something and buy it, we want this to be something that someone could use for 10 plus years. Mm-hmm. And something like Equestria, if you're if you're riding a horse today, you've probably been doing it for 10 years and you can do it the rest of your life, right? If you're a hairstylist or a barber today, you're gonna be doing it in 10 years. So we look at the longevity. And then to the point I made earlier, we look for a strategic entry point. So that could be, you know, booking is the most obvious example of it, invoices, you know, documents. Um, those are all entry points to payments. And then scheduling, time tracking, HR, onboarding, that's all entry points to payroll. These businesses don't all exist in the app store, but you would be quite surprised how many do exist in the app store. Yeah, that's interesting. We were kind of coming up on time. So I wanted to, to give you an opportunity to actually pitch. I mean, I, I imagine there's some people in our audience who might be interested in selling to you. Is there, you know, how, how should people get in touch or what would kind of your pitch be to a founder who's kind of gotten f- as far as they want to go, but they see opportunities and, and might be interested in talking to you? Um, yeah. So uh, one, reach out. Uh, you can find ways to reach out to us on our website, uh, universalsoftware.com. We have a lot of these discussions and can fairly quickly say in you know, 15 or 20 minutes, hey, we think there might be a path here or, uh, or B, there's not a path here. Um, but again, if you're, a, if you're a developer who has built to you know, a software product used by some substantial amount of people that you feel is adjacent to fintech, and you can see it kind of transforming into serving all the needs of uh, for financial services of your particular market, and you want a little bit of help getting there, um, Universe can be a phenomenal partner. Um, the other thing is, if you want to do it and you want to just do it on your own and you want to learn, we're more than happy to have that discussion as well. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a challenging thing for uh, apps in this category. Like when you get to the point of like, maybe thinking about a liquidation event or something like this, you're probably not big enough yet to go public. There's, there's not as many paths going forward. Um, if you're trying to find an acquirer that has a uh, like some sort of topical match, right? Like, oh, I'm selling, I'm mean, a book yes. app, I'm selling to a book company. So like, that's very challenging, right? Because there's not that many acquirers that have the same thing, right? So when you're, when you have something where y- y'all are more application agnostic, right? You have some like broad parameters. Yes. Um, you right. can do a lot worse than somebody who actually knows these businesses. Or you look at like a private equity, like a straight private equity doesn't care about what you're doing and like things like this. Like it's good as a founder to know these opportunities and options. And yeah, and I think it's really cool what you guys are doing. So thank you, thank you. And and to the point we made earlier, like uh, we're trying to lay the foundation for the infrastructure to to build this industry, right? And it's one element of it. It's not right for everybody, but it's one element of it. And, and that's why I love what y'all are doing at Revenue Cat too. You're laying this infrastructure that makes it easier for these people to launch great businesses. And then, you know, in turn, five or 10 years from now, maybe there's some new infrastructure that needs to be yeah. built because these businesses re- reached a scale that, you know, nobody ever envisioned and they need new things. Yeah. I mean, you've got my gears turning now. I'm like, <laughs> what do we build next? Because <laughs> like, you know, and, and in some ways it reflects that journey you're talking about. Like I've Sold on the app store. So it's kind of sold SaaS on the app store. So it's kind of like, you know, my game. And most of us here are kind of from that same background. But we definitely, uh, we see a lot of businesses at the point fix is a great one. Um, I don't know if we're working with them directly yet, but um, but I've talked to a lot of these where- You will be soon okay. if you're not already. <laughs> well, well, I've certainly <laughs> talked to folks that live in this world where like there's a SaaS component, but then there's also a transactional component. And marrying those two things can be really messy from a, infrastructure perspective from a compliance perspective like all kinds of stuff and and i think it's it's something that holds 
this whole industry back in a lot of ways, right? Because you can't use mm-hmm. one payments provider. You have to like walk this arbitrary line that Apple draws and, you know, any, anywhere that there's like unnecessary pain is a great business opportunity. So we'll, we'll keep thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I was actually just talking to Ryan Jones about this this weekend. He, he texted me cause he's looking at uh, our Stripe integration and, um, it's like, what? There's no, you can't use metered billing, you know, and with revenue count and Stripe, I was like, well, if you look at the current kind of stable of businesses we serve, that's like a really edge, edge, edge case because you can't do metered billing on the app stores. And so it's kind of forced apps into this very specific mm-hmm. business model around subscriptions. Mm-hmm. But it's like, there's this whole other world out there that like we need to expand into and that subscription apps can expand into as the tools to be able to do that on the web and to be able to push people out to the web uh, mature. Yes. All right, well, that's a great place to wrap up. It's just so many opportunities. <laughs> Uh, Eric, it was so great having you on the podcast. We're going to have uh, links to your website, links to the screenshot essays, uh, Twitter, uh, anything else you wanted to share as we wrap up? No, thank you all. This was fun. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.